Hey, gang, this week's episode is brought to you by 417 Helmets. It's collectible helmets and more. Many football helmets from just about every dead and forgotten football league you've ever heard of. Also, many baseball helmets from the Negro Leagues, as well as custom helmets. You want your business or your organization represented in a cool mini helmet format? Hey, check them out. 417helmets.com. Promo code GOODSEATS for 10% off all of your purchases. And now, here's our show. Following his senior season at UCLA in 1939, Kenny Washington had all the skills to be the number one pick in the NFL draft. But there was an agreement among owners that banned black players from the league from 1934 to 1945. So instead, Washington joined the LAPD while dabbling in acting and playing semi-pro football. But when the Rams moved from Cleveland to LA in 1946 and sought to play at the Coliseum, a local sports writer named Hallie Harding helped put pressure on the Rams to finally sign Washington and reintegrate the NFL. The reason the NFL reintegrated was because of the LA Coliseum Commission and the efforts of particularly one crusading black journalist. Basically, pressure was brought to bear and said, you want to move the LA Rams from Cleveland? You don't sign our Kenny, there's no leads. And that was hugely powerful. Why do you think we don't hear Kenny Washington's name as it relates to football in the same way we hear Jackie Robinson in baseball? Some would say he might be the first to reintegrate football, reintegrate the NFL for the modern game. And so therefore it's not as cut and it's not as clear cut as say with Jackie Robinson in 47, where, you know, he was the only black in major league baseball. If you talk about Kenny Washington in the late forties, reintegrating the NFL, it's, it's awkward because you have to explain how the NFL had been integrated and then unintegrated itself, resegregated itself. You can't go to Canton in the hall of fame and put together this tidy exhibit that makes everyone feel good. Why isn't he at least in the Hall of Fame as a contributor? He was more than capable of playing in the league and the, the league didn't allow it. The reality is, you know, for the Hall of Fame for players, um, most voters will look at statistics. Kenny Washington was well past his prime by the time he got to the National Football League. It was a very uncomfortable topic for the league and its owners to deal with. There are a lot of folks who would rather not discuss that. And there are some owners even today who are family members, distant family members, grandchildren, um, owners of teams back in the 40s. So it's it's a complicated and multi-layered subject. I'm happy that the Los Angeles Rams have taken steps over the course of this year and even the last couple of years to, to celebrate Kenny Washington's legacy because it should be celebrated. Kenny Washington is kind of lost to the history pages, uh, but nonetheless, absolutely Hall of Fame worthy, not only for what he did on the field, but just everything that he went through and, and equally being a pioneer. It would have been great if my grandfather got the chance to play right after he left UCLA, uh, because I think that even though his impact wasn't as strong as it could have been, it was like Bob Waterfield said, if he had gotten to play from 1939, 1940, until you know he retired, he probably would have been the best that they ever saw. It's time, it's more than time. Uh, for him to, to be recognized in the Hall of Fame, not only for what he did on the football field, uh, the bumps and the bruises that he took, but again, how he lifted up his whole community. Kenny Washington needs the same shine as Jackie Robinson. Let's get them aligned. Let's get the importance out there and let's keep his name alive. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast 
devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. All right, let's get this show on the road, shall we? My name is Tim Hanlon. Hi, how you doing? It's good to see it's still available. Yeah, the Curious Little Podcast that's devoted to what used to be in professional sports. Thanks for coming on by. This is your first time or your umpteenth time. We appreciate it regardless. Welcome. Uh, conversation this week gets into football. We're always happy to traverse back into football. And uh, a unique and important conversation uh, with a return guest. Dan Taylor is back. Uh, you may remember Dan from our episode number 208 when we talked about the Pacific Coast Baseball League Hollywood stars, Gilmore Field and all. Uh, we welcome Dan back to our microphones to talk about his latest book about a one Kenny Washington in the realm of professional football, a pioneer at that, an African-American pioneer who reintegrated, and we'll talk about why that's the term, not actually just directly integrated, the National Football League in 1946 with the arrival from Cleveland of the Los Angeles Rams. Yeah, the first three seasons of the Los Angeles Rams. And we know the LA Rams have moved to various places, including Anaheim and St. Louis, before round tripping back to Los Angeles. So it qualifies for our little sort of corner of the world, incarnations and all previous incarnations. Um, and we are fascinated by this story for a bunch of reasons. Number one, uh, Kenny Washington is, uh, a, a many, in many respects, an unsung and not fully recognized hero in the integration or reintegration of professional football in this country. Uh, along with his uh, UCLA pal, uh, pal, Woody Strode, he uh, brought the Los Angeles Rams a ton of attention in their first years in the LA Coliseum. Uh, you could argue perhaps sort of a bit sort of waning or past his prime, uh, Kenny Washington in particular, uh, because he was forced essentially to play semi-pro ball or minor league ball because of the inability to uh, go into the NFL. George Hallis, of all people. The Chicago Bears wanted to bring him in and draft him out of UCLA, where he was a, an absolute star player. They got a field named after him there. They still revere him at UCLA. He retired his number the whole bit. Uh, he was an All-American in 1939. He uh, lit it up in a couple of All-Star games that when the college uh, players played the pros back in the day. Uh, but uh, essentially, Washington was relegated to playing minor league ball with uh, the Hollywood Bears of the Pacific Coast Professional Football League, also known as the Pacific Coast Football League, and actually in certain terms was also known as the Pacific Coast League, not to be confused with the baseball version. However, I digress. He also, Kenny Washington, uh, did, uh, Washington did play for uh, even another league and another team for one season only, uh, the 1944 one-year wonder known as the American Professional Football League, mostly on the West Coast, uh, for a team called the L.A. Bulldogs. But that's that's really what uh, Washington's uh, lot was, if you will, uh, to to showcase his his um, his football skills. And he was a star in the Los Angeles region. People revered him, especially from his UCLA days uh, into wherever he played football and helped draw some big crowds for the Bears and the this Pacific Coast or American Professional Football League, whichever one he was in. Um, but, you know, the, the, his day job was work. He worked at the L.A. Uh, Police Department. Uh, he did bit parts in movies. Can we get into why? Because his dad was uh, a, a, an erstwhile uh, movie um, bit part player as well as an athlete himself. So kind of uh, walking in dad's footsteps. But um, it's also very interesting, too, because uh, Kenny Washington is not in the Professional Football Hall of Fame. 
And I think the more that people sort of recognize the story, they will certainly question as to why he isn't and how that can be quickly rectified, especially because two other uh, uh, pioneering trailblazers on this front, uh, two gents by the name of Marion Motley and Bill Willis, uh, are in the Professional Football Hall of Fame. Uh, and they played around the exact same time as Kenny Washington did. Uh, instead, they, however, played for the Cleveland Browns, the very dominant Cleveland Browns, of course, at the time. Ironically, the uh, the crosstown rivals of the Rams before they moved to Los Angeles. Um, in the AAFC, the All-America Football Conference, which, as we know from previous episodes, the AAFC essentially folded-ish into the NFL um, at the uh, tail end of the of, of the 40s. But they got into the, the Hall of Fame as uh, I, I as uh, members, and I we think, I think most historians kind of sort of feel it's because the Browns uh, were so dominant at the time and became, um, uh, you know, an NFL sort of a, a juggernaut. Um, and also, frankly, the play of those guys during that time in the AAFC um, was uh, their stats were were pretty significant. The case against Washington, the story goes, is that his stats were not all that great by the time he got into uh, the NFL with the Rams in '46, because his best playing days, frankly, were during the minor leagues. So it's it's the beginning of a of a conundrum and a uh, and a puzzle uh, that um, we get into this week with our pal Dan Taylor. And again, Dan's a return visitor uh, from episode 208, the Hollywood Stars. Gilmore Field. The Hollywood Bulldogs played a few games at, at Gilmore Field. So there's um, there's a, a, obviously a connection uh, there as well. Um, depending on when you're listening to this episode, either when we drop it on uh, Monday, uh, July 11th, uh, you can pre-order uh, Dan's brand new book on this, the, the topic of Kenny Washington. Uh, or if uh, you're listening on the, the 13th of July or beyond, it's available now. However you want to get it, you can go to Amazon or wherever books are sold or go to our website at goodseatstillavailable.com. Search up this episode number 267. And uh, with our episode with Dan Taylor talking about this uh, Kenny Washington story. And uh, you can order yourself a copy of the brand new book. And it's great. It's called Walking Alone, The Untold Journey of Football Pioneer Kenny Washington. The clip that you heard at the beginning does set it up. Uh, it's a Black History Month uh, feature done by a sports uh, reporter. Chris Hare out in Los Angeles. Uh, they call it CBS Los Angeles, but it was on, um, uh, let's see, KCOP Channel 13, I believe, which is now part of the CBS uh, construct in the local television in Los Angeles out there. That ran in February of this year. Uh, a great piece that uh, includes, as you heard there, a few interviews with some of uh, Kenny Washington's grandkids, uh, as well as a couple of sports writers, including uh, our old pal, uh, Alexander Wolf, a former writer for the uh, wonderful um, uh, sports journal known as Sports Illustrated uh, back in the day. Um, anyway, that's uh, that's our setup for this week, and uh, it's a it's a great conversation. It's a wonderful story, and uh, in many respects, it's um, it's uh, newly relevant. Uh, and I think uh, people are chattering again about maybe rethinking why uh, not to include uh, the great. Uh, legendary Kenny Washington, and give a listen to this episode. And by the time it's done, perhaps you buy yourself a copy of this book by Dan Taylor, uh, you will be convinced of the same. Uh, we'll get to that conversation in just a moment's time. Uh, instead of, uh, however, uh, of doing a, um, a promotional piece 
uh, at this juncture. I just I want to take a moment and um, uh, just give you a bit of a sense of of what our week has been like here. Um, some of you may know that uh, we record this show uh, in Highland Park, Illinois, and um, if that uh, that town is now seared into your brain, well, you know why. Because a couple of days ago, as we record the show, literally three blocks from this studio, um, horrific tragedy uh, occurred. Um, uh, you you know the circumstances, uh, and you know literally how this is yet just another uh, episode in the seemingly endless uh, horror story that is uh, American gun violence uh, in this country. And I, I I you know I don't use this uh, podcast as a political platform or any kind of that. Um, but you know, like anything in life, a, a death in the family, uh, a cancer diagnosis, uh, anything tragic that that hits literally close to home, it really puts things into perspective. And you know, not that yours truly was sort of unaware or uh, uh, not concerned about sort of this issue. Um, it, it's it's still it chills one to the bone that that uh, in this country. Um, uh, the availability of uh, semi or fully automatic uh, assault weapons uh, is even a thing. And I don't, you know, really care where you sort of sit on the Second Amendment or if you're on the left side or the right side of of the political spectrum and stuff. I mean, I, there's no reason that anybody, frankly, of any age, I don't care if you're 18 or 57 or older than that even, or anywhere in between, for God's sakes, I, I just... There's no reason why any civilian, average person, mentally fit or not, should have access to a weapon that pumps dozens of bullets in a minute, less than a minute, towards anything, a tree, an inanimate object, let alone human beings. Um, it, it, it just, it strains logic it's it strains humanity um and and I will tell you it's a very tragic and sad time in this town in Highland Park I, they they found the guy literally in my town one town north of here on the highway literally a, a mile and a half away he had another semi-automatic weapon in his car okay a mile and a half away from my house okay so I you know I I can go on and on. I mean, I have a, I've a colleague from work uh, whose mother was tragically killed in the Sandy Hook shooting years ago, and that 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 you could not top that for for horror. Um, so I, I sadly, this is one of those things that it's. I hate to say this, but it becomes just a matter of time, just like death or cancer diagnosis or any of these other things that beset our, our society. Here's the irony, though. We can actually do something about this. And, you know, again, this is not a political statement. And I, again, this is not a platform for that. But think about this as a health issue. Think about this as a life issue. Think about this as a humanity issue. Um, it's just enormously sad enormously tragic and enormously avoidable and i you know i'm sorry for spending time uh, on a on a seemingly frivolous show like this but i, I just thought it was a little bit more honest uh with uh, with you uh versus uh, trying to hawk some some products this week 
uh, to kind of let you know sort of where our head's been at this week. And and if we're a little off kilter, um, I think you'll know why and perhaps understand why. Um, and let's do something about this situation because it's it's insane. There's no other way to describe it. It's insanity. And it it, it only brings hurt onto people. And that's not right. Okay. Descending Soapbox. Thank you for listening. And I'm sorry for uh, that digression. Uh, but this conversation is well worth listening to. Great conversation. Uh, we appreciate Dan coming back uh, this week to talk about the great and underrated and uh, uh, deserving, I would say, uh, into the, to be in the, uh, the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Let's talk about the story of Kenny Washington, the L.A. Rams, uh, and all of the story uh, of his. Coming right at you now. Please, as always, enjoy. We welcome back to our microphones the great Dan Taylor. From uh, an earlier episode, we were talking about the uh, the Hollywood stars and, and the fun story there, but... We shift our gears, I guess, here to football, and you know, remind our audience your um, uh, your intrigue into. I'm I'm going to now guess and say sort of Southern California sports stories. Um, how does uh, how does your career was not in shall we say sports history was it? Well, not necessarily. No, I, it, my background is certainly in sports. Thirty years as a sportscaster and. And I've always enjoyed uh, baseball and it made a lot of great contacts. And as I got into writing, uh, those connections kind of led me into some, some of these subjects. Uh, the book I wrote on the legendary scout, George Genovese, George played for the Hollywood stars. And so he kind of whet my appetite with his stories about the stars and, and got me looking into all the innovations they brought to baseball. And, and, and through that, another great friend that uh, I'm, I got to know through George, his name's Artie Harris. He was one of the scouts in the movie Moneyball. Um, Artie's a UCLA guy and got telling me the story of when he taught at UCLA in the late 60s. There were two guys on the faculty uh, who uh, had been at the school in 39 when Kenny Washington and Jackie Robinson were teammates on the football team at UCLA. And they, they both insisted that Kenny Washington was far better. And, uh, and Artie had a, a, a colleague, uh, his first coaching job, who had been a teammate of both of those players at UCLA in 39. And, and he said the same thing. And that really got me curious because I'd, I'd heard of Kenny Washington. I knew a bit about him, but really didn't know a whole lot about him. And as I rolled up the sleeves and, and got digging, I, I was completely amazed uh, by what I found. Yeah. And it's an interesting sort of connection there at UCLA, right? The, I, 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 you know, the Jackie Robinson story, right, obviously is, has been told uh, time and time again. And I'm sure there's some nuggets still yet to be um, revealed from all of that. But, um, uh, you know, you're talking about uh, a guy, Kenny Washington, right, who, and we'll get into a whole bunch of, of, of components of all this, but um, these guys, both of them, uh, Kenny Washington and um, Jackie Robinson, uh, played together, not only in in baseball, but also football, correct? At, in, well, in only, they only played together in football. Uh, there's been a lot written in indicating they played together in baseball. They did not. Oh, interesting. Uh, okay. But, they, but they there each, were comparisons it, made in baseball for sure. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. They each played just one season of baseball at UCLA. Kenny in his sophomore year in 38, uh, Jackie in his junior year in 1940, uh, and had vastly different experiences. Kenny was second in the league in hitting and, and Jackie hit 097 in his long season at UCLA. 
but they were football teammates, same backfield, incredible talents. All right. So describe to me, obviously, the the, the genesis of the story really – I mean, there's obviously prelude as to you know his story before getting to UCLA. But UCLA is clearly a pivot point in this story, right? Kenny Washington, obviously a standout athlete in – not one, but two sports uh, back in this in this late 30s period. Um, maybe a little bit of background as to how he gets to UCLA, and maybe I guess a hint that um, UCLA seemed to be a, a pretty big uh, way station for for talent because we've just talked about two really good ones right there, right? Absolutely. Uh, Kenny had big ambitions coming out of high school. Um, he he grew up a Notre Dame fan. But the Notre Dame program at that point was not integrated. Uh, he he had ambitions. Uh, Cal uh, University of California Berkeley was was a, a national power at that time, and uh, an uncle who was kind of a father figure to him took him up to Berkeley. Uh, but the coach at the time at Berkeley was was not really interested in integrating the program. It had previously been integrated under another coach. Uh, the Southern California schools, Loyola in particular. Uh, UCLA, they 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 wanted him badly, and uh, UCLA, uh, the inducements included a car, uh, money. Uh, they wanted him very badly, and his his high school coach Jim Tunney Sr., father of the legendary NFL referee, uh, really tried to push him toward UCLA. He felt that was a a good destination for Kenny. It would it would work out well all the way around, and. Uh, and, and Ken, sorry, Kenny's an L.A. guy, right? He's growing up in L.A. Exactly, so exactly. Radars of, of the local scouts and the the coaches and stuff. Exactly. He, he attended Lincoln High School. Uh, the Lincoln Heights neighborhood is just to the east of Dodger Stadium across the Los Angeles River. And at that time, that was the immigrant neighborhood. Um, you had a lot of Italians, Russians, Germans, Greeks, uh, and the Washington family settled in, in that area. And what was interesting was when Kenny arrived at UCLA, uh, what kind of stunned some of his teammates was not necessarily his, his amazing skills, but, but they spoke with a, a touch of an Italian accent. <laughs> and it, it came from the neighbors on either side of him and uh, taking him to church and to school and him spending so much time in their homes. But uh, yeah, he was very heavily recruited. Um, St. Mary's was a big football power at that time. Their coach wanted him badly. But uh, UCLA uh, uh, won out, and, and, and that was a very open type of a program. There were only 12 college football programs at that time that uh, were integrated. And UCLA brought in both Kenny and Woody Strode, uh, later a very successful actor who was a heck of an end, uh, both offensive and defensive, and, and they came in at the same time. And then later uh, in 39, Kenny's senior season, Jackie Robinson came in from Pasadena City, Jackie's close friend, Ray Bartlett, came in. He was an offensive and defensive end. And then Johnny Wynn, a, a real strong fullback linebacker, came up from the freshman team. So UCLA, where a lot of these other schools that were integrated had maybe just one black player, UCLA had five. Very interesting. All right, before before we get into UCLA, I actually, I need to precede this with a bit of, of Kenny's uh, parentage because he had a very famous uh, father who was obviously – not so obviously, I guess, to our audience, maybe not part of the picture very shortly after Kenny was born. But um, I, I guess that that's a big part of the story. Uh, Blue Washington, um, for our audience, obviously, the adjunct there is uh, was a, uh, uh, a pitcher and first baseman uh, in the 
uh, in the Negro Leagues, uh, teams like the Chicago American Giants and the Kansas City Monarchs. And he was also an actor, uh, often uncredited actor and often um, uh, racially stereotyped, I guess, uncredited, too, uh, in a lot of different roles and stuff. So I guess this is how we're talking about Los Angeles as being uh, the place where Kenny's uh, uh, growing up, but, but maybe a, a bit about his dad, Blue Washington, and perhaps his uh, his name association in that story. Because I'm I'm just going to take a wild stab, not having read uh, this part of the book, that uh, that fame perhaps got Kenny a little bit of a of a look, or at least some name recognition, perhaps getting into college. Hard to say. I, I, I've never gotten that impression. Uh, Blue Washington, yes, was a very uh, athletically gifted individual. He boxed as a teenager, lied about his age, uh, played amateur baseball, uh, and, and that was in and around some jail time served. Uh, but yes, uh, Chicago American Giants signed him. Uh, his time with them was very brief. He returned back home uh, to Los Angeles and, and took up playing uh, semi-pro ball. Uh, but when the Kansas City Monarchs began as, a, as an expansion franchise, he was their original first baseman. Uh, he lasted about half of that inaugural season with the Monarchs before he was let go and returned to Southern California and uh, got into acting, uh, had a lot of friends that uh, were in the business and, and doors got open to him. Frank Capra had been a high school teammate, uh, a classmate, I should say, and so used those connections and and uh, and got into acting. But you know, when payday came, generally, uh, you know, uh, Blue Washington disappeared, and he was not uh, uh, was not closely involved in Kenny's life. Kenny's mother uh, was 16 uh, when she gave birth, and uh, there were there were stretches where she was not completely involved in his life. Uh, she did come back into his life later, and and was a very strong force in his life. But uh, he was principally raised by his grandmother. Uh, she was a widowed woman, and uh, he had an uncle. And, uh, his uncles were, were very successful, uh, but Roscoe Washington, his uncle Rocky, uh, was a lieutenant on the L.A. police force, and uh, and he really took Kenny under his wing and 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 uh, was his father figure and mentor. And then later, uh, when he got into professional sports, was, was kind of a a manager who would handle negotiations for him. So interesting. So so Blue did sort of come back into into Kenny's life a, a bit i'm guessing a little bit but not not a lot i mean there were there were a lot of articles indicating during the war years where he boasted of having sent kenny to ucla and and everybody that i spoke with said there wasn't a shred of truth to that kenny kenny was on scholarship uh i've heard stories from family members that that really indicated that, that there really was no relationship through through most of the years uh and, and it was a very strange situation between Kenny and his father. But yeah, his, his father was a, a very skilled athlete. But uh, I, I don't think I think Kenny Kenny earned everything on his own. I mean, he, his skill was so supreme uh, in, in Lincoln High School and the things that he led Lincoln High School to accomplish, the championships they won in football and baseball, which they had never won before and, and have not won since. Uh, you know, his, his talent uh, earned him everything that that he got. Well, okay. We obviously football is where he's going to stand out, as we talk about in a minute. But um, I, I do want to address this: Is it an urban legend? Is it apocryphal? Is it true, or somewhere in between? That uh, Leo DeRocher, then the uh, the manager of the Brooklyn Dodgers, uh, uh, somehow learned of of Washington as a uh, as a talented baseball player and 
uh, offered him or wanted to offer him a contract to play for the Dodgers in Brooklyn still at the time. Uh, but with some only, though, if he went to do some sort of, I guess, preseason uh, seasoning uh, in Puerto Rico or sort of the, the rookie leagues and stuff. And I guess he turned that down. Um, so number one is, to your knowledge, is that even a true story? Number two, uh, it sounds like his football career was going just fine. Thank you. That perhaps maybe he was more, uh, I don't know, intrigued with the football side of things, given all the accolades he was getting on that front. Well, the first part uh, is is an urban myth, and it was not true. Uh, the I, I believe actually it, it was Casey Stengel who, I, mean, I, I think it was Casey, but I'm not 100 percent sure. You, you may be right on that on DeRocher wanting him to go to Puerto Rico and and be able to say that they were signing him as a Puerto Rican. Uh, he was so well known that that there's no way that could have worked. Uh, oh, so there's even a, even a, an ethnic angle to that story. Okay, well, right. some of this is also is the you know. The internet can uh, no. I've seen that all crap, over the place, right? Yeah. So who knows? That's why. That's why I ask people like who spend their time actually digging into this. But but it's an intriguing story, I guess, to the point where, and you can certainly finish. I'm sorry, sorry to interrupt, but it's certainly an intriguing proposition that he's Kenny Washington is is an athlete that's looked upon, I guess, in certain as as being not just one a one sport kind of player, right? He's got that kind of talent. Well, in three different occasions, 1940, 43, and 45, Kenny was at the center of efforts to integrate baseball. Uh, the 1940 situation right after he had graduated from UCLA or finished his eligibility, um, it was kind of an innocent thing. Larry McPhail came to Los Angeles uh, for the horse racing season opener, and, and a, a columnist used the opportunity to write an open letter urging McPhail to basically pull his head out of the sand and be the guy to integrate baseball and do it by signing Kenny Washington. Uh, in 1943, during the war, the sports editors of the three black newspapers in Southern California approached the Hollywood stars and the Los Angeles angels who were complaining of having trouble finding players. And they proposed that Kenny Washington could fill a spot. And there were a number of Negro league players working in some of the, the war plants in, in Los Angeles who could, come in from time to time and play. And the Angels said they were open to giving Kenny a tryout. Uh, they never did. The manager declined to do it. Uh, but then when Jackie Robinson signed in 45, Branch Rickey had announced that he was not just going to sign one, but two African-American players to play the 46 season at Montreal. And Jackie recommended Kenny. And Wendell Smith, the sports editor of the Pittsburgh Courier, who was a real confidant of Branch Rickey's uh, because Wendell covered the Negro League so thoroughly and was so well respected. Uh, he sent a letter to Branch Rickey reminding him of his plan to sign a second black player and urged that that black player be Kenny Washington. And in his letter, he said, you will find that Kenny Washington is far better. It didn't happen. Interesting. Well, but. Uh, pretty good solace, though. I mean, this is a guy who was tearing it up on the on the gridiron. Absolutely, absolutely. And and as a high school baseball player, as a sophomore, uh, he was in a tooth and nail uh, race for the L.A. high school batting title with another sophomore. Uh, the other sophomore won just by a, a fraction of points, and it was Bobby Dore who would sign a professional contract at the end of that sophomore season of high school and ultimately become a Hall of Famer with the Boston Red Sox. Uh, and then in college at UCLA, he was second in the conference in hitting. He was leading the conference until 
the last two and a half weeks of the season when he contracted the flu and was hospitalized. So he was, and Kenny Washington said throughout his life, his first love was baseball. And, and had the timing been a little bit different, uh, he would have pursued that rather than the NFL. All right. Well, the NFL came a call, and we'll get to that in a second. But let's talk about his Bruins career uh, as a as a football player, at least a, a, a good shine to it. He, this is a guy who's part of Kenny Washington is college football Hall of Fame material. OK. Uh, and, um, you know, he was probably, I guess, by many accounts, one of UCLA's uh, first true standout national uh, attention grabbing players in the program's history. He was the first. He put the UCLA program on the map. Uh, everyone who saw him play, uh, whether they were collegians, coaches, uh, professionals, all, all agreed he was the best player they had ever seen. Uh, Kenny Washington may well be the greatest player to ever play the game of football. He could throw a football 100 yards in the air. Uh, he had the power to run off tackle and run over linebackers. He had the speed to get around the end and run past defensive backs. And his coaches said that he was even better on defense. Uh, but UCLA's program had, well, it had not been what USC was across town. USC was a national power. Uh, and they beat up on UCLA so frequently and by such lopsided scores that there were a stretch of years where UCLA withdrew from the Pacific Coast Conference and played lesser schools. Uh, but when... Bill Spaulding became the coach. They brought him in from Minnesota with the idea of trying to develop into a power. Uh, they returned to the Pacific Coast Conference. And, and Kenny Washington was really the guy that, that helped them take off. Uh, uh, they were getting better year in, year out. But when, when Washington came, everything changed for them. They started playing powerful programs uh, and they were able to, uh, to compete head-to-head uh, -head with these teams. And then the 39 season, was when all the magic came together with Kenny and Jackie in an undefeated season, and it went right down to the to the final game for the school's first trip to the Rose Bowl. Yeah, and and uh, clearly also burnishing his bona fides as uh, as a nationally uh, you know uh, strong you know player, uh, certainly in West Coast sports writing circles. But he was still you know he this was also though the time where. You know, be, be as part of that, right? He's experiencing perhaps maybe more uh, intensely than even his high school career, right? On a national level, beginning that national attention, some of those, you know, true racist and uh, other ill will uh, uh, things, and maybe even slights too from uh, national sports writers or, or others, where perhaps if he was not African American, he might be more easily understood or accepted as a, a you know a lock as an all-american selection or or a, a, a an all-star game uh, uh selection and, and it was clear he was getting a few um i guess misses on that when most people who were evaluating talent and seeing him as a player would have automatically sort of said he's a lock candidate for those things no question no question and, and to both of your points Yes, he under, underwent a lot of horrific abuse. Uh, and I'm not detracting anything from Jackie Robinson. I'm trying to make a comparison here. You, you know, you look at the abuse Jackie Robinson was subjected to on the baseball diamond in a non-contact sport. Think of a guy like Kenny or Jackie underneath a pile. 
and the abuse they're getting. I mean, there were games where the team doctor at halftime had to spend all of his time stitching up Kenny's face. Uh, there was a, a game with Missouri where the players would scoop up handfuls of chalk from the sideline. And then when they tackled Kenny, attempt to smear it in his eyes. Uh, the, the verbal abuse coming from sidelines. There was a, a game in his senior year where he had to be restrained from going after the head coach at Washington State for the things that the coach was saying about him. Uh, it, it was horrible. Uh, Jackie Robinson told an interesting story uh, after his first season in the Dodgers organization. Uh, he explained that the Montreal club's first road trip was to Baltimore which was below the Mason-Dixon line. And he had just been married to Rachel for two months. And so Rachel accompanied him on this road trip. And in the first game, the, the verbal abuse was just horrible. And in their hotel room that night, Rachel began sobbing. And she pleaded with Jackie to quit baseball and return home to Pasadena for another line of work. And Jackie said, honey, this is nothing compared to what Kenny and I went through playing football at UCLA. As to the, the uh, you know, being shunned and, and the media dealing with him on the West Coast, he was he was really uh, beloved. Uh, writers on the West Coast thought the world of him. Uh, you know, he carried the West Coast in Heisman voting. He just didn't get any Heisman respect from anywhere else in the country. Uh, part of that was there was no sports center back then. Uh, you know, you didn't see him. You heard about him. But uh, I sifted through all kinds of newspapers and, you know, you might find a small little paragraph about what UCLA did out on the West Coast in papers in the East. So people weren't hearing a lot about him around the country. And certainly uh, when it came to Heisman voting, uh, you know, the, report, the writers in the South and the writers in the East, he didn't get many, if any, votes. When it came to All-America voting, yes, he, he was the first team All-America on three of the 11 All-America teams. Uh, first UCLA player ever to be named an All-American. But Grantland Rice, the, the legendary sports writer, did not put him on any of his three All-America teams that he did for a, a, a high-profile magazine. And he was the only one. He was the only one of the writers uh, who produced an All-America team that did not include Kenny on any of the three. Uh, so, yeah, there, there were things like that that went on. And, and, and the Southern California writers, they called those writers out when, when Kenny was ignored. They, they knew what was going on and, and that, that it was wrong. Did, did um, the fact that he was on a, a relatively uh, less successful UCLA football team and program over until that time, do you think that had an effect as well? Oh, it very well could have. You know, the, he, UCLA had depth and injury issues his sophomore and junior seasons, and, uh, and he himself was injured uh, a bit in both seasons and missed some games. Uh, so, yeah, that, that certainly helped uh, hurt to a degree, but – his senior season, uh, particularly that game with with USC, the the season finale, uh, everybody came out. It was the NBC game of the week. This is nineteen thirty nine, correct? Nineteen thirty nine. Uh, that drew the largest crowd in college football history at that time, one hundred and three thousand into the Coliseum. Uh, NBC sent Bill Stern out to broadcast it live nationally. Uh, Grantland Rice came out, and Grantland Rice was very negative about it. Uh, but uh, what had happened that game? With USC, that was for all the marbles. That was for the conference title and a berth in the Rose Bowl. Tennessee had previously accepted the invitation to come to the Rose Bowl. But when, S when UCLA defeated Oregon State in week nine, and suddenly Tennessee realized, wait a minute, 
if they beat SC, we're playing a team with five black players. Tennessee sent word that they weren't coming if UCLA was going to be the Rose Bowl opposition. Uh, it was a dramatic game. It finished in a scoreless tie. Kenny's pass into the end zone on UCLA's last play was batted down. Uh, a lot of controversy about the play, but uh, it was it was an incredible game. And Grantland Rice went back and wrote that you know it was terrible football. He didn't see any quality players, and that uh, Tennessee was going to come in and destroy uh, whoever they they played. Uh, that USC in the Rose Bowl. Well, USC beat Tennessee, so. Well, and U- UCLA until that time had never been in a major or anything any well there was much smaller number of bowl games back then. Um, he had never been in a in a college football bowl game, and I think because as a result of the tie, didn't get invited to any other game that season. If I had no, you're right, you're right, because all the bowls had been locked up uh, prior to the Rose Bowl, so that that the Pacific Coast Conference entry was the last hole to be filled. Uh, the previous year. Uh, USC accepted another bowl invitation at the last minute, and uh, UCLA jumped in and, and replaced them in the, uh, the Pineapple Bowl in Honolulu. But uh, they were playing the locals, the University of Hawaii. But uh, yeah, uh, they had no other option in 39 after uh, losing the tiebreaker in the scoreless game with USC. All right. Well, tell me how he gets, how Kenny gets into the pro game because. It's not a logical jump into the NFL. As a matter of fact, it's it's actually kind of a sideways thing. Some of it from, I think, from his own sort of perspective and his own choice, but maybe some of it, frankly, from or held back by forces beyond his control. And, and uh, doing this uh, episode from suburban Chicago, literally a stone's throw from uh, the current training camp uh, uh uh, environment of the Chicago Bears, a one George Hallis comes into play. Um, maybe you could talk about him and, and the role here, because uh, the, the All-Star game, which game was it? The college All-Star game uh, is, I think, where Hallis kind of sees and, and uh, uh, understands the uh, Kenny Washington uh, capabilities uh, front and center. Well, it's interesting, uh, Tim, because Kenny, there was a big controversy on the West Coast because the East-West Shrine game was the premier college football all-star game at that time. And it was for many decades. And Kenny was not chosen. And there was just outrage among all the sports writers up and down the coast. And, uh, you know, the the selectors said it was done based on uh, performance abilities. And and finally they pressed enough where they admitted that they, they did not select Kenny because they felt it important to be able to attract players from the South and that those players likely would not play in the game if Kenny were included. Uh, but the college All-America game, Kenny was chosen. That was by, in August. For our audience, this is, the, this is the game that used to uh, be the sort of college All-Stars versus, I guess, a, an assemblage of of NFL uh, players. Uh, in no, a, actually, it was against the NFL champions. That, the champions. Was, the, Sorry, that was the yearly format. Right. Can so you imagine you have... that happening today, by the way? Oh, <laughs> But wow, I mean, so yeah. still a, a nice uh, and pretty significant spotlight for some of the best college players, right? Uh, maybe a little bit of, uh, you know, small solace, perhaps, given the East-West Shrine Games visibility, but still not a bad platform. No, not at all. Not at all. So he, so he's ignored by the East-West game, but he is selected and travels to Chicago and, and plays in the College All-America game, which features the best just graduated seniors and and the NFL champions, which at that time was the Green Bay Packers. 
And and Kenny was very impressive. You know, they, they have a week of workouts leading up, and uh, he was very impressive. And a lot of the West Coast players you know, were quick to comment that they were ecstatic that he was on their side and, and not an opponent for once. Uh, a lot of coaches who came to watch were extremely impressed. Uh, and Kenny played well. He uh, scored a touchdown. He ran right over uh, the Packers' top defensive lineman. Uh, had a, a punt return that was a yard shy of, of breaking the game record, but he played quite well. And, and George Hallis, uh, Kenny told the story for many years that George Hallis got word to him to, that if he wouldn't mind, uh, Hallis would like him to stay in Chicago for a few extra days because he wanted to try and, and – uh, make arrangements to be allowed to sign Kenny Washington to play for the Chicago bears. So Kenny took advantage of, of the time. He summoned his fiance, June Bradley to Chicago. They got married. They had a honeymoon. And then ultimately, uh, Hallis got word to Kenny that, uh, it wasn't going to work out. He was not going to be permitted to, to sign him and, uh, integrate the national football league, uh, for the 1940 season. Right. When he came, when he went home, uh, I'm sorry, Tim. No, I was, I was going to say, I mean, I, obviously I want to scratch a little deeper on that, right? Because so Hallis, what, lacked the intestinal fortitude to do what was painfully necessary to kind of be the one to break the barrier? Was it, were his hands tied? What, from what you can tell from your research, what what kind of, you know, prevented Hallis from really stepping up and going that extra mile to, to make this happen. I think he was looking for approval of the people at the top of the league and he was looking for approval from his fellow owners. Uh, it's a good yeah, question. Right. In 1940, I think for our audience, also remember too, the NFL was not sort of the juggernaut that it was today. You remember previous episodes where we've talked about, you know, surviving. Uh, we haven't even gotten to the war years, right? 1940, right? Which, uh, brought the league literally to its knees, uh, contractions and all that kind of stuff. This was this is even before it comes out of that sort of trial by fire, so to speak. So this is, you know, Hallis, right? This is a guy, you know, and and, and others like him, the the, uh, uh, the the Art Rooney's of the world, right? This these are you know um, a scrappy bunch of 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 male white owners, right? That are it's still kind of a club, right? And and not nearly the uh, you know, the massive national sport that it is. But still, I just one wonders how Hallis, you know, kind of I don't know, wilted at the challenge, perhaps. Yeah, it's a good question. And I, I did not find a definitive answer. I, I go back to 33 when the last African-American player in the NFL was cut. And that was uh, Joe Lillard, who was a really talented player with the Chicago Cardinals, maybe their best player. But Paul Schistler, who was the coach of the club at that time, explained to the to the media that in every game, the games just degenerated into brawls. And they started off as players from the South trying to beat up on Lillard. And ultimately, teammates that came to Lillard's defense found themselves in fights, and it, and it just spread. And Schistler said, you know, we had to do this for – we had to let him go – for the, the safety of our players, that these fights were not going to stop and these games were not going to degenerate into melees as long as he was on the on the club. And, and so I've wondered how many other owners looked at that and, and said, you know, we, we, we can't integrate because this is what's going to happen. 
uh, George Preston Marshall, different story. Uh, that's well, say I no mean, more, right? I mean, George Preston. Yeah, Marshall, exactly. I mean, I think depending on I, my understanding is that you know that he was essentially the lone holdout, and all the others were yes. okay with it. I mean. Regardless of that, right? I mean, that his presence it was a whole other topic, right? I mean, right. And, and and you know, one of the excuses that was given in his case was that he wanted to become the team of the South, and he wanted to build with players from the South, and that's why he wanted to stay an all-white team. Well, uh, I don't even want to go there, but well, I mean, yeah, yeah I, you know, with forces like that or a force like that, I mean, yeah, I mean, we, we've talked about the Washington Football Club and 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 and. You know, uh, that, that in and of itself is it's a whole sort of serial comic drama. But I mean, the yeah, I mean, in essence, this was the team in this fledgling with, uh, NFL that was literally the gateway to the South and was literally the only team, you know, uh, from Washington, D.C. southward. Right. And, I, you know, I, I guess he's reading his market, but, you know, but obviously the just the insensitivities and, and then some. Right. Um you know, I just even on its face, a player of that caliber and that quality, right? Just essentially being lost to ignorance and/or other distractions and diversions. Um, but it speaks, I think, sadly, I guess, to the not only the uh, that that sort of line of thinking, but it literally took just one voice amongst the other voices to say no for it not to happen. Right. Right. It, 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 that's one of the tough parts of, the, of a project like this, because you, you find yourself when you're doing this kind of research and the depth you get into that you really build an attraction to this person. And you really find yourself rooting for Kenny Washington. And when, when things like this happen, you just your heart's sick. You, you feel awful seeing what society did to him. Uh, it, it's just an unbelievable life that he had. And. and to have gone through this with the NFL and had these ups and downs and, and uh, you know, uh, the Chicago situation. He, I mean, he, he came home from Chicago and, and, and declared he was through with sports. Uh, he had a lot of promoters offering him opportunities, all-star games, uh, boxing, uh, boxing career, things of that nature. But, you know, baseball and football was, was what he wanted to do. And, and playing it at the highest level, he knew he had no opportunity. And so his, his goal was to finish up his final few classes at UCLA. He was going to go to law school, and then he was going to apply to join the FBI. Sports was was in his rearview mirror until he got off that train when he and June Bradley returned to Los Angeles from their honeymoon. All right, what's this? Four seventeen helmets. My goodness. Well, you've heard me talk about 417helmets.com, collectible helmets and more on this uh, very show uh, fairly often. Our pal Judd Lesher down in uh, southwest Missouri, I think in the Springfield, Missouri area, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, it, what is it? 417helmets.com. Well, first, if you dig uh, all of our great football stories and episodes of the past and you'd like to commemorate some of them, in mini helmet form. Really cool, sort of literal, high quality, professionally you know, made materials, but in a mini format that you could put on your desk or uh, put on your uh, in your bookshelf or whatever it is. Uh, and just about every league that's ever existed saved from the NFL. 
Uh, we're talking XFL, uh, old versions of. Uh, the WFL, remember the World Football League. How about various teams, both current and past, in the Canadian Football League? But also NCAA teams of your and NAIA college football teams of your. All of them and many, many, many more available for you at 417helmets.com. But, oh, that's not it. That's not it, friends. There's plenty more to be had. How about mini baseball helmets? Yeah, uh, a whole bunch in the Negro Leagues. And yes, officially licensed by the Negro League Hall of Fame. You can get a bunch and they're making more uh, all the time. Um, And by the way, custom helmets can be made too, both of the baseball and the football variety. You got your your business, uh, maybe a promotional thing you want to do for your company, uh, perhaps your organization, you want to raise some funds, all that kind of stuff. Great custom approaches to both mini football and mini baseball helmets can be made uh, at uh, your uh, command uh, for uh, uh, you to enjoy and to sell or resell or give away all of that and more. That's the more part at 417helmets.com. It's collectible helmets and more. And uh, we've got a promo code for you too, for whatever you purchase, all of them, all of your purchases, 10% off all of those uh, when you use the promo code GOODSEATS. Again, promo code GOODSEATS for 10% off all of your purchases at 417helmets.com. Thanks, Judd. And uh, thank you all for listening and trying them out. And now back to our conversation. All right, so set this up then because I'm fascinated by this semi-pro football career that he chose, but it sounds to me like this is an assemblage or a part of an assemblage of activities, right? So he's playing semi-pro ball, and you can explain sort of the league and the situation and stuff, but he's also working, I guess, legit as a, as a, as a cop, right? Maybe courtesy of his uncle and his connections there or maybe plans for law school and that kind of stuff, right? So it's clear that the playing days are not, quote unquote, fully over, right? Well, the the two careers did not overlap. Um, He joined the police department when World War II broke out. When Kenny returned home from Chicago, unbeknownst to him while he had been gone, Paul Schisler, who had previously been the Chicago Cardinals coach, now lived in Southern California. He saw this huge void that there was no professional football on the West Coast. There were four regional leagues around the country. You had the NFL as the the top football league. And there was an independent club in Los Angeles, the LA Bulldogs, that had had launched in 36 with the idea of trying to get into the NFL, but travel distance was what kept that from happening. So Sisler got together with Jerry Corcoran, the owner of the LA Bulldogs, and they came up with a plan to create a league, the Pacific Coast Professional Football League. And they had no qualms. It was an integrated league. I mean, Woody Strode was one of the first that they signed. And when Kenny got back from uh, his honeymoon, uh, Schistler met with him and and, uh, made him a pretty substantial offer and signed Kenny Washington. And, And Kenny made this league. Kenny was the most popular athlete in Southern California. I mean, after the 39 football season, when they voted on the 1939 Athlete of the Year in Los Angeles, he won over Alice Marble, who had just won Wimbledon. He was far and away the most popular athlete in in Los Angeles. And 
professional football on the West Coast had never done anything at all. It, it had just been independent clubs, uh, promoters trying to put all-star exhibitions together. The promoters, nine times out of ten, fled town without paying their bills and, and left a bad name. So when, when Sisler and Corcoran put this league together, uh, they they really got something going on the West Coast that I think ultimately, and really because of Kenny Washington, it laid the foundation for the NFL to ultimately come to the West Coast and, and have success. Um, the league grew. Uh, it was flourishing. Uh, Kenny was the star. Kenny filled the stadiums. Uh, when the Hollywood Bears, his club would play in Gilmore Field, they sold the place out regularly, 20, 22,000. And this was exceeding what was being done in the other leagues around the country. Uh, the war broke out. In fact, Pearl Harbor happened in the middle of a Hollywood Bears game. They made the announcement over the PA system, and a lot of the fans had to leave. Uh, but that put the uh, that put the league on hold for three years because many of the players and coaches ended up going into the military. Now, it was at that point, Kenny wanted to serve. He wanted to serve his country, but he had a young family, had a young son, and so he was very low on the draft list. He wanted to do something. The police department in L.A. was in dire need of, of officers. They uh, had lost so many men to the military. So Kenny went and signed up and uh, joined the Los Angeles Police Department. Now, a lot of promoters wanted to put on events to raise money for the war effort. They wanted Kenny to play in all-star football games. But the police department said, no, nope, uh, we can't risk him getting injured. We need him on the job. So 1942, 43. Kenny spent those two years on the police force in Los Angeles uh, and not playing football at all. Very interesting. So this is interesting to hold up a bunch of different levels. So number one, uh, you're describing this uh, PCL or PCFL or PCPFL, whatever, Pacific Coast Professional. <laughs> like, it seems like it had a number of different acronyms depending on the year or the month maybe that you were asking. Um <laughs> But it's an interesting parallel to what we've heard around the evolution of the National Hockey League and Major League Baseball, right? Having um, West Coast uh, almost equivalent minor leagues to that of the pro version. And for various reasons, uh, you know, through travel or uh, lack of vision or whatever it might be, um, this was essentially the top level of professional football at the time that you could find. It's also interesting, too, because the war, as we have talked about in multiple episodes alluded to earlier, uh, was, uh, you know, it savaged uh, a lot of the professional sports leagues and probably not more uh, uh, dramatically than the NFL, right? I mean, to the point of, like, contracting teams like the Steagles, right, and the uh, the card pits and the, you know, uh, literally just to, to scrape to survive to get, you know, quality players enough and, and contraction of teams and that stuff. And, and um, you know, the, the fact that you had uh, some very strong professional play on the West Coast, I mean, it's ironic, right, where, you know, Hallis couldn't get, you know, uh, Marshall to kind of, you know, start the integration thing, right? I mean, you the mind boggles, right, when you think about all these quality players, especially of the African-American variety that could have, in many respects, helped further save the NFL from its dramatic uh, uh, and almost life-killing uh, 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 the throes of depth that it was in it during the war years. But, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. Absolutely right. And and there were some, a number of African-American players in the 
Pacific Coast Professional Football League. Uh, and Jackie Robinson was one. Uh, he had been uh, an interesting side story. Jackie uh, left school at UCLA after his senior se- football season and uh, took, uh, took an opportunity in Hawaii to play semi-pro football that, that came with a good job. Well, he hurt an ankle and decided to uh, sail for home, and he left Honolulu on December 5th, 1941. And he was out at sea uh, on his way to San Francisco when the news came, and and he said when he arrived, he'd never been more scared than those several days and nights at sea uh, where they were zigzagging and, and concerned about possible enemy submarines out there. But when he got home and, and his ankle was healed, the Los Angeles Bulldogs signed him. And, and that was, a, that was really ballyhooed uh, uh, games between the Bulldogs and the bears, Kenny and Jackie. Uh, they had a, it was developing into a very strong league. Uh, and a lot of it had to do with it being an integrated professional football league. Did, did Robinson ever play for the Hawaii warriors or, or is that just, he just never made it to the, the uh, an actual game. Oh, no, he did. He did. He played uh, for a semi-pro club over there. Um, and I don't recall the name of the club, but uh, yeah, he did. He was playing for them uh, when he got hurt and elected to come home. That's very interesting. And I, um, I, so give me give me a sense then of the quality of play of this league, uh, this rivalry, I guess, budding between friendly rivalry, I guess, between Washington and and, um, and, and Robinson. It sounds to me like it's almost like this uh, a spirited rivalry that uh, you and I talked about between, you know, in our previous episode between the um, the Stars and the LA Angels at the time, or, or even afterwards that too, uh, where this sort of uh, the battle, if you will, for the LA Basin in terms of a uh, sport, in this case, football. It was a very fierce rivalry between those two. Uh, initially, they both shared Gilmore Field. The, uh, the LA Bulldogs ultimately went over to Wrigley Field, the, the Angels ballpark, and here you had the Hollywood uh, Bears playing in Gilmore Field, which was right next door to the Hollywood Stars ballpark. But it really was. Their, their contests were very, very heated, very physical. It was a great rivalry between those two clubs battling for, uh, uh, you know, supremacy of Los Angeles. Jackie didn't play for the Bulldogs that long. He went into the military uh, not too long after he came home from Hawaii, but he did play in a few games uh, for the L.A. Bulldogs. But uh, when you look at the talent, a lot of these players in the Pacific Coast Football League ultimately moved into the All-America Football League when that started up in 1946. The, the L.A. Dons, uh, Frankie Albert was was playing uh, for the L.A. Bulldogs. Uh, and he went to the 49ers when they started up. So uh, there was really good talent. And then Woody Strode uh, and uh, Sugarfoot Anderson, who was Washington's star receiver on the uh, Hollywood Bears, uh, they both went up. They they integrated the Canadian Football League and and uh, turned the the Calgary club into a powerhouse up there. So uh, there was really good talent in this league. I, I, I Kenny Washington laid the foundation. This league set it up, but Kenny and this league laid the foundation for the NFL to have success on the West Coast. All right. Well, let's let's talk about that because the end of the war certainly plays into this. Um... And and the NFL um, and the All-America Football Conference, right? So maybe you could sort of set the stage for 1945, 1946 with football in Los Angeles, sort of what was sort of going on at the time, the sort of lust for this market now that the war was over. And, um, and, uh, and then we'll sort of slide into how Kenny Washington uh, benefits from such, finally. 
So to paint the picture of Los Angeles at the end of the war, first off in 44, the Pacific Coast Football League was pretty much on hiatus. And a guy named Bill Freelove, who uh, was in the was had an aviation company, uh, decided he wanted to create a challenger league, and and announced that he was going to take on the NFL and create the the American Professional Football League, and and that he was going to build it on Kenny Washington, and uh, Washington really wasn't interested. Uh, Freelove set up his league up and down the West Coast, and ultimately, uh, a team in San Francisco. Uh, made Washington an offer he could not refuse. He resigned from the police department. And in 1944, he played for the San Francisco Clippers. Well, at the end of the 44 season, the Pacific Coast Football League jump-started. It started back up again. And and Washington returned to the Hollywood Bears. Uh, Strode came back from the Army Air Corps. Paul Sisler, the head coach, came back from the Army and and, uh, the league started up again, and, and it had a, a tremendous season in, in 1945. Uh, there were a number of, of players who had not been from the area but were working in the various military factories, aviation, airplane and munitions and whatnot in Southern California that decided to make it home and, and play professional football, and uh, and it just increased the uh, the talent level uh, in, the, in the Pacific Coast Professional Football League. And the, the attendance was tremendous. Uh, the games at uh, Wrigley Field were sellouts. The games at Gilmore Stadium were sellouts. Uh, they really had it going in 1945. All right. So describe the. I'm sorry. This is an, an interesting uh, cul-de-sac that I'm. It sort of eludes, I think, and that's arguably why a book like this matters. Because can you describe this league? Because I think people just kind of think that uh, that Washington went from sort of this. Uh, I won't call it ragtag, but this Pacific Coast League directly to uh, the L.A. Rams, and obviously you're describing a, a something in between the San Francisco Clippers, and and what what was this league and its role? Was it sort of trying to be essentially a replacement or a maybe more I don't know well funded replacement eventually for this Pacific Coast League? Or well, that that's what the founder planned was uh, for it to be a well well funded league that would replace the Pacific Coast League but it didn't work out that way uh, most of the owners lost money uh, Babe Didrikson Saharius was the owner of the San Diego team uh, they lost they had their franchise taken away from them she and her husband because uh, attendance was so poor uh, the league uh, in 44 the the American Professional Football League it just didn't make it and uh, so it was, so a, it, was year, it was a one year wonder in four. It was a one year wonder. Absolutely right. Uh, the San Francisco team with Kenny struggled because of the weather more than anything else. They they would promote these home games and, and hope for a big crowd, and then it would rain and nobody would come. And uh, they ended up trying to play regional games outside of San Francisco. It, it just didn't didn't go over. So after the forty four season, that league went away. The Pacific Coast Football League started up again, and uh, and Kenny returned. Uh, to the Hollywood Bears, uh, along with Woody Strode, who came out of the Army Air Corps, and and a few other players that that joined them uh, that had great backgrounds, and and they won the league title. Interesting. There there was uh, actually uh, a Hollywood team in this one year American Pro Football League called the Rangers, um, and I guess the L.A. Wildcats of that league uh, were, I guess, perhaps the, if you will, the replacement of the. L.A. Bulldogs, if you will, for those missing 
I guess, local pro football in the Los Angeles area. Um, no, it's also the Mustangs, Los Angeles Mustangs. That's right. They're the Mustangs as well. So yeah, three teams. Yeah. Very interesting. Um, okay. So Washington, though, is keeping his, he's keeping it real, right? He's still playing. Um, so he's coming back now to the PCL. Is that, is that the, the, the goal or fate trans, uh, fate uh, intervenes? No, he comes back and plays the 45 season for the Hollywood Bears. Uh has a tremendous season for them. Uh, got hurt late in the season, but uh, uh, you know all indications are that this is going to be his football future. Uh, there's rumblings of a potential new league. There's rumors that uh, you know this league is is coming together in Chicago, uh, the All America Football Conference, and there's a lot of hope that it'll be an integrated league. I think when when they announce a franchise from Miami. There's a real concern that, that the league is not going to be an integrated league. Uh, there's rumors that a team may come into Los Angeles. Uh, uh, no one knows what to make of it, but uh, I don't think I, I don't get it. I never got a sense that that Kenny was looking too far past uh, the Hollywood Bears when he wrapped up the 1945 season. All right. So now describe to me why Los Angeles all of a sudden becomes uh, the greenest pasture for pro football Seemingly overnight. I mean, as you look back at it historically, I mean, again, of course, the war is over. I mean, there's there's there's, you know, a lot of uh, opportunity and, and, and distractions are I mean, it's obviously a lifesaver for the NFL. Um, it almost seems like it, it helps take the blinders off to this fertile uh, ground that the PCL and the one year American Pro Football League have been kind of tilling for some time. And uh, not one, but two franchises and two leagues now all of a sudden coming in to take over LA. One of the big problems uh, with trying to get the NFL into California was just travel distance. You're traveling from Chicago. I mean, there, there's, there's no other club closer. So it's a, it's a long haul out. It's a long haul back. Um, you know, teams were traveling by buses or station wagons uh, so it, it, travel, you know, like when the L.A. Bulldogs were trying to get into the NFL or even the a precursor to the old AFL, uh, the big issue was always travel. So suddenly the, the All-America Football Conference comes along and, and they're going to put teams in both Los Angeles and San Francisco and, and kind of reduce some of that, uh, the issue. And uh, but the Rams had been struggling in Cleveland. They won the 1945 NFL championship. They played in the old baseball stadium in Cleveland, not not municipal, not the large municipal stadium, the but they League played Park. League Park. That's right. That's right. Which seated 17,000. And they only filled it one time that season on their way to the NFL championship. So Dan Reeves uh, was casting his eyes elsewhere. Originally, the feeling was when he bought the team, he wanted to move them to New York. Uh, he was from that area, and the feeling was he, he just wanted to take that team to New York. That never came together. But uh, ultimately, he, he thought the, the time's right. Los, the market in Los Angeles uh, is strong. Uh, the numbers are there, but, uh, you know, the college teams draw extremely well, and uh, the pro teams have certainly been doing much better than other pro teams around the country. So the timing is right. The big question was going to be, getting use of the Los Angeles Coliseum because UCLA and USC had it written into their lease agreements that there could be no professional football in the Coliseum. And so Reeves uh, hedged his bets. He also 
put some money down to reserve the Cotton Bowl in, in Dallas as a possible home for the for uh, the Rams. But uh, he set his sights on moving that team to uh, to Los Angeles. All right. Well, let's back up for a second, though. I, I, what about the Dons, though? The Dons, obviously, they I think I think if I'm not mistaken, if I have the timeline right, were announced first and then the Rams maybe kind of then saw. No, you're right. You're right. So so I'm wondering where Washington fits in both of that, because clearly whoever is coming to Los Angeles, whether it's one or two teams, uh, has to be thinking about a guy named Kenny Washington, given just his just sheer popularity in the region. Right. The Dons, uh, and they they took a page out of the Hollywood Stars book in baseball. Uh, Don Amici, the actor, uh, was the lead owner, uh, and he put a group of of actors and celebrities together as uh, his investment group. And uh, they got the team for Los Angeles, and Amici named it after himself, the L.A. Dons. Uh, But they never appeared to make a serious run at Kenny. And, And what's interesting about that is the guy they had hired as their general manager had been the coach at St. Mary's who tried to recruit Kenny out of high school. So he knew Kenny well. And he made mention on a few occasions to sports writers that he was a little concerned about the knee injury Kenny had suffered in one of his last games with the Hollywood Bears. And so they were taking a wait and see on him. Uh, but the Rams, they had no hesitation. Uh, and I have often wondered how things might have been different if the Dons pounced quickly and signed Kenny Washington and maybe also Woody Strode. And, uh, because they did sign uh, Sugarfoot Anderson, who was uh, Kenny's top receiver. Uh, with the Hollywood Bears. But, uh, you know, I just wonder how things might have changed. You know, might the Rams not have succeeded in Los Angeles and the Dons become the key player and maybe ultimately gone into the NFL? Right. And, 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 yeah, there's a whole sort of a, a, a series of things that sort of could come for that. And I think at the time, I mean, the AAFC was looked upon, certainly the the ownership group for the Dons in particular, as, uh, shall we say, big money or, or strong yes. money versus sort of the familial – you know, closed uh, uh, grouping, if you will, of, of, of that of the NFL. But it's also interesting, too, um, there's another, uh, I won't call it convenient, but um, uh, interesting dynamic to this Coliseum story um, that maybe even forces the hand of the Rams to uh, approach players like Washington and Strode. Um, there's, this, uh, there's this component of, the ownership of the stadium, which is owned by the the, uh, the county, I'm guessing, or the Los Angeles, the city, the county, um, and uh, being in a public facility, uh, there was a, a real strong uh, belief set that um, integration had to be part of the mix for a pro team, even if they could get over the college hurdle, to even even think about playing in the Coliseum. When uh, when the Rams made their announcement, their general manager quickly boarded a train and came out to Los Angeles and, and they had a, a meeting of the Los Angeles Coliseum Commission to discuss granting a lease to the Rams. Privately, the Coliseum Commission had met with both the administrators at UCLA and USC and negotiated uh, for them to relieve the Coliseum of that that clause that, that banned professional football in there. Uh, the schools both got future uh, uh, date, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, but they, they got priority dates uh, for future scheduling. Uh, so they, they were going to allow the Rams to, to play there. Uh, 
when they had the meeting about it, a sports writer for one of the, the black newspapers in Los Angeles uh, asked to speak. And he, he raised the point that the Coliseum had been built with taxpayer dollars and that African-Americans were among those taxpayers. And if the National Football League was not going to permit African-American players to play in the league, that the Coliseum should not grant a lease to the Rams. And the general manager of the Rams jumped up and tried to defend himself and said there was no written policy. And of course, the response was it doesn't have to be in writing. Uh, you know, the practice of the league speaks for itself. Uh, and then uh, Chili Walsh, the Rams general manager, said, we will bring Kenny Washington in. Now, what, I, what I've had a, a difficult time trying to pin down was when I look at the timelines, the, the PR director of the Rams kind of indicates that that he had had some private meetings with Kenny right around that time. So at the, at the same time, the Rams were thinking Kenny Washington. Uh, what, the, what was done in that meeting was tremendous. It really woke people up. Uh, it, it, it illuminated this, this issue to Los Angeles. Uh, and the Rams vowed that they would, they would give Kenny Washington a shot. The general manager left uh, right away, went back to Cleveland to close up the offices and, and set up the move. But uh, his PR director stayed and he met with Kenny and got an agreement with Kenny. Uh, he met with uh, Paul Sisler, the, the owner and head coach of the Hollywood Bears, and agreed to a fee to purchase Kenny's contract from the Bears. And uh, the deal was that they had to keep it under wraps until the Rams officially came out and set up their office. And when, when they did, which was three months later, uh, the very first press conference they held on their first full day in Los Angeles was to announce the signing of Kenny Washington. All right. Let's talk. I want to talk to the, a quick cul-de-sac on the, the probably the loudest voice in the press. I think it's Holly. Is that how you pronounce it? Holly Harding? Holly Harding. And, and he, w- he was actually one of the guys in 43 who was pushing the Hollywood stars and the LA angels to, to sign Kenny Washington there as well. Uh, but Holly Harding, yes, uh, he stood up and, and, and made a very impassioned speech. Uh, this guy's a sports writer uh, for the uh, Los Angeles Tribune, which was, the, so the, I guess, the leading African-American paper at the time, and, and himself a former athlete, a fascinating character now. I'm, I'm writing it down for for a future episode because I want to go further because this guy <laughs> played, he played pro ball for the Harlem Wrens. All right, let's talk about the Renaissance uh, Ren Fives and and Major League, ba- uh, ne- well, Major League now, of course, ne- Negro League Baseball too before becoming a sports writer. So there's, the, but it, it seems to me like, like this voice in particular really certainly didn't hurt the cause. Let's put it that way. Absolutely. Me. He deserves a, a lot of credit. Hallie Harding was, was tremendous. Uh, he accomplished so much in Los Angeles uh, in his role and uh, what he did on behalf of attempting to get uh, the National Football League integrated uh, was tremendous. And and that impassioned speech he made at the Coliseum Commission meeting uh, really had a lot to do with solidifying the Rams' decision to uh, to sign Kenny Washington and and reintegrate the National Football League. All right, let me ask you this, though, for, for, from your research and, 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 and your read of what was going on at the time. Um, how quote unquote ready or prepared, I guess, was Kenny Washington for what ostensibly was going to be the first African-American signing uh, and uh, breaking of this 
unwritten rule of segregation or prevention to join the National Football League as the first African-American player. I mean, I'm assuming he understood the gravity and the significance of this, but do you was he ready for this, if you will, psychologically and 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 mentally and and um, and maybe even physically, because we talked about some of his neat things, but that's a different story. Well, absolutely. Uh, he, he was. And and I'll digress just a little bit because uh, 10 days after the Rams reached out to him and he gave the Rams his word that he would sign the contract. That's when the Brooklyn Dodgers finally contacted him. And, it, and despite him loving baseball and wanting to play professional baseball more than football, he told the Dodgers, I've given the Rams my word. I can't do this. I'm going with football. And he said, I think what I have to do here in football is just as important as what Jackie is going to do in baseball. So he understood what he was doing. He realized his role. Uh, the tough part for him was a the injury situation because the knee injury he suffered turned out to be much worse than he realized and involved extensive surgery. Uh, but the other part of that was a transition. He had always played in a single wing offense, uh, which was just perfect for him uh, because the, the ball would be snapped to either the right or left halfback directly. And Kenny had what we see now as being very common in pro football, that run pass option. And it was just perfectly suited for Kenny Washington. Uh, but the Rams were a T formation team that put their quarterback up under center and, and they wanted to take advantage of Kenny's great throwing arm and use him at quarterback. So they, but at the same time, they knew that that could be a problem with his knee. And so him learning a whole new system uh, was very difficult. Him trying to recover from knee surgery uh, was also very challenging. Those were bigger issues for him on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, those first few months uh, with the Rams in, in 1946 uh, than anything else. I'm curious, too, about how much the physical component of it. You're mentioning the fact, too, that, you know, he had this knee injury um, and that at least some scouts or some folks were a little hesitant. But um, I, I get the sense that he kind of got into the groove fairly easily. I mean, the, this is a guy who was leading, I guess, on a couple of different statistical categories and stuff for the Rams. Um, but I... I guess I'm trying to also get into the sort of physical sort of part of it. Was he a diminished player because of the surgery or was he as yes. good as he was in college? No, he was he was definitely diminished. Uh, and, and that's the sad part of this. When the opportunity finally came, he was not the great Kenny Washington. Uh, the 46 season was a lost season. But I'm sorry, um, but his reputation, though, still preceded him. He oh, was absolutely. Well loved and, and yes. arguably given, given the, shall we say, the benefit of the on-field doubt. Yes, but 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 there were starting to become sports columnists and, and a few sports writers who were suggesting that, you know, maybe he was done, uh, that, that maybe his time had passed. And, and the 46 season uh, was very difficult for him, uh, trying to learn the quarterback position. He did start an exhibition game uh, in the College All-America game. The, the Rams, as the reigning champs, played the College All-Stars and Bob Waterfield was the Rams quarterback. He had been the MVP in 45. He got hurt. Kenny came in for him. Uh, in fact, his first his first game in the National Football League against the Eagles, uh, he came in as a quarterback. And his, his first touch was a completed pass. 
but it was later out of concern for his knee that they decided they would move him to a fullback and and they felt that that he could be a great fullback. Now Kenny worked unbelievably hard. People have asked me, could he have succeeded in the game today? And you read things with with his time with the Rams and they all said there was nobody in the organization that worked harder. The things he did after the 46 season to try and rehab his knee and regain his, his quickness and speed, uh, it's mind-boggling how hard he worked. And and when he came back in 47, there were a lot of people who felt, yeah, this is Kenny Washington. Kenny Washington's on the way back. And for a good two-thirds, three-fourths of that 1947 season, he was in a battle with Steve Van Buren for the league rushing title. Uh, in a game with the Cardinals, he ripped off a 92-yard touchdown run that to this day is still the longest uh, scoring run from scrimmage in, in Rams franchise history. Uh, but late in the season, uh, you know, some heinous in the pile stuff where uh, players were grabbing and twisting his leg, trying to intentionally injure him. And he, and he did re-injure the knee and uh, missed a lot of games late. And then in the 48 season, why, uh, you know, he had a lot of injury issues and midway through the season just said, the end of the year, I'm, I'm done. The injuries have, have taken their toll. He got a nice send-off, though. Uh, there, he did. There's a story about uh, his last game, and 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 um, I, I don't know it was because it was his last game, but it was almost a sellout crowd there, or it was at least 80,000 for that game. Um, it's clear that the fans, um, you know, for various reasons, uh, just thought he was uh, just a, 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 an amazing character as well as a player. But he was loved. He was actually lo- he was he was tremendously loved in Los Angeles. And I think one of the special moments of that game was it's the only time his mother had ever seen him play. She was scared. Uh, she was Jamaican. She didn't know American sports. She was she was frightened. She wouldn't watch him play. And uh, she did attend that game. And she was overwhelmed by the outpouring of of love from the fans uh, for, for her son. Uh, it was a very emotional day. Uh, but you know, not the not the end of his his sports career just yet. All right, so, I, um, I I guess I want to sort of get into, um, his role as a quote unquote trailblazer, right? Um, obviously he understands the the gravity and the significance of the situation, um, and with he and Strode be- becoming the first two. African-American players, not only on the Rams, but also in the NFL. Um, There was also something going on simultaneously, as we kind of alluded to before, across town, right, with Marion Motley and and, and Bill Willis um, also being the first African-American players in the All-American Football Conference, right? Um, I, I guess the but I, I think more people know about the Motley and Willis sort of story and 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 that of of uh, of the Browns from that time um, than perhaps of Washington and Strode directly in the NFL with the Rams at that time. Uh, it seems like there's an unevenness term, in terms of recognition and, and that kind of stuff. Do I have that wrong or has there been kind of an imbalance? No, I think you're right. I think that uh, part of that is the stage of the careers. You know, uh, Motley uh, had a tremendous NFL career, and they their careers were just beginning. Uh, Kenny's was really at the end. Um, Got it. And, and, and Kenny was really uh, such a Southern California phenomenon 
uh, and a beloved uh, idol in Southern California. Uh, but the, the, the guys in Cleveland, uh, that was a, a franchise that was really building into something special. Uh, they had an iconic head coach in Paul Brown. And, uh, you know, Wills and, and Motley were outstanding players, but, but they were, you know, in a stage in their career uh, where they were really just taking off. Yeah, I, I, that said, though, right, um, I'm just uh, you wonder, right, in retrospect, and, and certainly wrongs have been righted in places like, say, oh, geez, the Baseball Hall of Fame. Um, you, you would think that these four players together uh, appearing at the same time in their respective leagues, by the way, one of which was not part of the NFL and arguably has a couple of asterisks next to it. When you talk to NFL historians in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, for and again, it is not the the forum to debate the Cleveland Browns of the AAFC and whether that should be incorporated into their history as the NFL because they were competing against the NFL, and of course they should be, but you know maybe not. But you know, um, I, you would want you would think that these four gentlemen together would be celebrated and or uh, recognized for their mutual achievements during this very crucial year, albeit with two different teams in two different leagues. No, I agree. I agree. No question at all. And I, I, I don't see how you diminish uh, what Willis and, and Motley did just because it was in the AAFC. Uh, you know, the competition level in that league was very good as we saw when teams from that league ultimately joined the NFL. Uh, no, I, I think those four have to be celebrated without any question. And do you think Washington in particular has been overlooked? I mean, look, this is guy, this is a guy who obviously was uh, you know, by UCLA standards, his number's been retired. He's obviously an LA sports legend for sure. So, it's not like he didn't have a career of significance before joining the NFL, right? So, it almost feels to me like there's almost a, it feels like a snub to me. And maybe well, this I, is maybe why you wrote the book, I don't know. Well, I certainly wanted to, to get this out there because I, I felt like this is an amazing individual who had a remarkable life and it needs to be known. Uh, I, I, I don't in any way, shape or form mean to uh, cast anything negative toward Jackie Robinson or, or the folks at UCLA, but I, I do feel like Jackie Robinson has overshadowed Kenny Washington. Uh, you know, uh, John Savage does a great job with the baseball program at, at UCLA. Uh, there's a statue there of, of Jackie Robinson uh, at their their Jackie Robinson Field, but there is no notice at all, nothing to denote Katie Washington, who was the first black baseball player at UCLA. Uh, here he's the first All-American football player at UCLA, the first athlete to have a, a number retired. Uh, and, and, and there's, I don't know... Uh, you see the you see the retired number, uh, but I, I think a lot of people don't know who he was or anything about him, and and that just boggles my mind to, to see a guy who who may have been their greatest player of all time, and and he's forgotten, and that's wrong. Before you go, I got to ask though on, um, he did have a bit of his father in him, in that he did take a couple of roles in some motion pictures. I noticed. Um, uh, how much do you know about this? Apparently, it's a lost film. This 1940 film called "While Thousands Cheer." It's a holy grail of, of films. If if you can find it, Tim, 
<laughs> well, what is uh, it? A lot this of people is, looking for it. This is 1940 you know, when, when he was just getting out of college, right? Right. He was he was besieged by a, a number of offers because of his popularity. Promoters wanted to do all-star football games. Well, uh, he had a guy in head of a movie studio approach him, and they wrote a film with the idea of him starring it. Thousands cheer, and and uh, the film was an all-black cast, and it was for. Uh, black cinemas, black audiences, and uh, by all indications, it did quite well around the country. Uh, but where this film is, nobody knows. Uh, people have been trying to find it for a long, long time. Uh, later, Kenny did make, he was in 10 films and some very big films. Uh, Pinky uh, in 1949 was uh, had several Academy Award nominations. It was an extremely controversial film uh, for the day, it involved uh, the first interracial uh, love scene in, in motion pictures. Uh, Kenny played a doctor in that that movie. He was in the Jackie Robinson story and a brief speaking part as, as a coach. Uh, was with Charlton Heston in a film. So yeah, he he uh, he knew his way around the studios there. And and you it kind of it started. UCLA would get their uh, their players jobs in the summertime, and and they got Kenny a job working at uh, Warner Brothers and, and at Paramount Studios. So. He got to know his way around uh, the studios well and, and uh, made a number of films. But he ultimately went back to real life, right? Being uh, back to the, the police department, I guess, right? No, no. Um, actually, he, uh, he actually finally got a shot at professional baseball, at Major League Baseball. 1950, Leo DeRocha brought him into the New York Giants and uh, gave him a shot. And the first couple of exhibition games, Kenny started in right field for the Giants. And it was a big story back then. Here's this football great trying to make the transition at the age of 31. Uh, ultimately, uh, he was one of the last guys cut. They wanted to send him to their AAA team. Uh, and Kenny said if he was going to play in the minors, he wanted to stay on the West Coast. Uh, at DeRocher's recommendation, the LA Angels signed him. Uh, he spent the month of, of April with the Angels uh, he got hurt. He was playing third base for them. He got hurt, and uh, he decided to go ahead and retire from sports at that point. So he did get a shot, but it was late. And then from there, he got into sales uh, with the largest uh, liquor distributorship in Los Angeles, and ultimately uh, with the largest uh, one of the largest liquor distributors in the country uh, was their vice president. And then uh, 69, 70, he became very, very ill, had a very rare lung heart disease, and passed away at the age of 53 uh, in 1971. And so we're, you know, obviously in Los Angeles sport, I mean, we're talking generations now, right? And sadly, this is why we partially do this show, because people, you know, as the generations go on, they forget these these folks. But, you know, if somebody goes to, to UCLA's campus and they see this Kenny Washington um, banner hanging from one of the, you know, as one of the retired numbers, um, you know, I this is a guy who it seems like um, truly uh, broke barriers, um, was well loved, had a had a pretty damn impressive career on a number of different fronts, with a whole host of you know possibilities if one thing went one way or the other. Right, baseball. Uh, uh, the, you know, the first, uh, you know, uh, there's a lot of different sort of things that could have been broken him even f uh, further into the uh, uh, into the pantheon of, of sports history. But but what I guess the the sort of wrap up question would be sort of like, what do you think 
this what did you learn from this story that you that you didn't know and and can you make even a stronger case for why his story needs to be remembered versus what any sports historian would would automatically say is should be one well first before i answer it thanks tim because what you, this is what is so important about what you do is bringing these stories to the to the public eye uh, it, it, well, Kenny Washington. We, we just had a conversation. You wrote a whole damn book, so come on. <laughs> let's, let's give credit where credit is due. <laughs> what I came away with is, is that this is one of the unique athletes in American history, the unique achievers in American history, one of the u- unique men in American history. And, and people need to know this. Uh, it's wonderful to go to UCLA and see what they've done to, to remember Jackie Robinson, Arthur Ashe, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, so many others. Uh, who have earned these places in our history. Uh, but Kenny Washington should be right there with them. And it's very unfortunate that he's been forgotten. And and I hope that uh, that this will help people to appreciate Kenny Washington and, and bring to Kenny Washington and to his family, uh, you know, the, the respect, the regard, uh, and the rightful place in history that, that, that he deserves. Why, why do you think the NFL has been... I don't know, uh, off their game when it comes to more, uh, you know, adamantly and and seriously uh, elevating Washington's story. Well, I, I think it's it's a challenge because if you if you, you now I'm just theorizing this, or or maybe even the Rams franchise for that matter, right? Well, that, yeah, that, no, 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 the Rams is a different story. Yeah, the Rams. Uh, that, that's a good question. There, I, I think. You know, I think there's there's issues in terms of the league because you had guys like Paul Robeson and, and Fritz Pollard who played in the 20s. And you had a number of African-American players that played up to 33. So if you focus all your attention on Kenny Washington and Woody Strode as a league, are you diminishing the importance of Fritz Pollard, Paul Robeson, and, and, and the many African-American players that played up to, to 1933? I think if you focus on, you know, Kenny and Woody uh, reintegrating the league, being the first in the modern era of the NFL, I, I'm, I am surprised that the league hasn't done a better job of, of really showcasing them. And, and maybe uh, you helping to bring this to light, Tim, maybe that'll wake some of them up. Well, I don't know about that, but I mean, I would say that, you know, it, it certainly feels to me that the um, uh, there are ample opportunities in our yes. sort of evolved or in, in, in most cases, our evolved culture, um, that uh, the, the league, the team would want to not only embrace, uh, but, but to elevate the story and, and, and connect the dots, right? Um, you know, how many LA Rams fans, right? The St. Louis, the Anaheim. I mean, there's so many moves of this, this franchise over the, <laughs> over the decades, right? Um, how many people really know this part of the story, right? W- you know, and again, w- we can debate whether his three years or so as a Rams player were worthy of professional Hall of Fame inclusion. But as we've seen plenty of times in other Halls of Fame, right, your, your playing career is one component of of a, a much bigger tableau. And, and to ignore the other parts of what was going on around the time and the significance of this reintegration thing, the fact that there was a quote-unquote reintegration, right, the fact that, that there were African-American players and then all of a sudden there couldn't be African-American players. And then all of a sudden, again, there was a few there were a few people who were willing to break that unspoken code and reintegrate. I mean, that 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 itself is a story. Right. And 
you know, the NFL can do what the NFL wants to do, right? Uh, and maybe uniquely among American sports leagues. But, you know, we, we live in a, in, a, in a day and age now where um, that history isn't neatly swept under the carpet as maybe it could have been years past. But I, and, I believe what I believe one of the things that Kenny did was he opened the eyes of the other owners. He opened the eyes of these owners to see that it was not like 33, that, that sending a black man out onto the field was not going to create melees anymore. And, and so bit by bit, you saw in Kenny's second season, a couple of teams, the, the Giants and the Lions signed African-American players. His third season, a few more teams signed African-American players. And I believe that Kenny was the guy that opened the door for those players to be signed and for the league to grow. All right, many thanks to our now uh, two-timer guest <laughs> on this show, Dan Taylor. Thanks for coming back. And uh, the book, of course, you must get. Run, don't walk to get said copy. Either uh, pre-order or order in earnest, depending on when you're listening to this show. It should be out on the 13th of July. So uh, check your calendars accordingly. It's called Walking Alone, The Untold Journey of Football Pioneer Kenny Washington. It is available in hardcover and Kindle form, by the way, by Roman and Littlefield Publishers. Uh, you can follow Dan and his exploits at his Twitter feed. It's at WritingGuy, W-R-I-T-I-N-G-U-Y, at WritingGuy. And, uh, of course, you can follow us on Twitter while you're there. How about a follow for at GoodSeatsStill? If you're on Instagram, you can follow us at GoodSeatsStillAvailable. If you're on Facebook, you can follow us at Good Seats Still Available as well. The website, of course, say it with me, GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com. That's the uh, locus for every episode we've ever done, will do, and um, whatever. It's our little uh, homage, our little uh, uh, archive, whatever. Of course, the best way, though, to enjoy this show, all our uh, special feeds that we drop in between our scheduled episodes every uh, early, late Sunday, early Mondays uh, is to subscribe or follow whatever the methodology is, wherever you get or choose to listen to podcasts or on every platform that matters. Um, and um, we appreciate that. And if you're on, I don't know, places like Spotify or Apple or wherever else they allow reviews and you think uh, we're worthy of a decent one, Please leave one. We appreciate that. That helps other people like you and maybe sometimes not like you uh, to uh, discover this episode in their uh, their recommendations and stuff. So we appreciate that, too. Um, what else? Uh, let's see. We want to thank, of course, Jerry Payne. Jerry Payne Audio Excellence. All in capital letters this week. Thank you, kind sir, as always. And um, thanks for listening. We've got a lot of great stuff, a lot of great interviews. A lot of very interesting people, some of them quite famous, actually, uh, in the months ahead. Uh, wish us luck in locking those down. Uh, but we appreciate your support of this little show uh, to no end. And uh, please stay safe, stay smart. And uh, we'll see you next week. Uh, until then, and God willing, take care. We love you. See ya.